Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 68th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Have you ever yelled at someone that didn't deserve it? Lied about something to a friend? Or perhaps took something that didn't quite belong to you? You might have noticed, that is, if you're not a psychopath, that you have been overcome by a strong sense of guilt. You might rationalize to yourself the many reasons as to why you believe how you acted is right. And yet, something within you tells you otherwise. But where exactly did these thoughts come from? Are they a product of our evolution, our need to make sacrifices to get along with our tribe in order to ensure our survival? Is our common morality simply our biological imperative to survive? Perhaps our morals have more to do with the television shows that we watched, what books we've read, which for the most part have been heavily influenced by a Judeo-Christian ethic that has pervaded a lot of our media, at least up until the 21st century. Maybe our morals have more to do with our immediate family structure, the wise grandma who corrected us when we were wrong, the hardworking father who never let his family starve or want for anything. But then, how can we explain the difference in siblings? Is it our schools and our communities that are at play? Perhaps morals are no more and no less than the agreed upon norms of the current group that you're fraternizing with. Hence, a choir boy on Sunday and a miscreant on Friday. To help illuminate some of these mysteries, I am joined by Luke. Luke, am I as only as good as the person I'm talking to right now, my friend? It's super likely, I guess. I hope so. Um, but if we constantly hold ourselves as we're only good, we're only good enough as to comparing to the person that we're talking to. Say, in in your when you said family members, like again, the wise grandmother or the very say the stoic grandfather, then we don't really sort of broaden our perspective on perhaps other individuals that may have differing differing values or maybe who place their values in other in other aspects perhaps the the stoic grandfather in like even in the same family dynamic stoic grandfather and the sort of wise gentle grandmother do have opposing values as well mm. where like one of them can disagree with something um that the other agrees with and the child especially in this case from a familial dynamic a child can pick and choose the one that favors uh, favors their situation more. So in that sense, we kind of run the risk of we kind of run the risk of sort of like selective. Um, and since we're talking about morals in this episode, we kind of run the risk of like selective morality, where it's like we're only choosing one that which benefits ourselves in this case. I think this is a really good point that you're making. And when we think of the family structure, we, we always think of like some monolithic unit of like, this family is the pure family or this family is the good family or that's the dysfunctional family. But there's also like these casts of adults, like uncles, aunts, you know, like cool grand, like people don't even, people have to take into consideration that you actually have sometimes two grandpas from your mother's side and your father father's side exactly. and, and and it's like it, it's like it, it's a lot more complicated and I, I i like what you're saying that when we look at things like the family structure well there's a whole bunch of other influences and by extension when we when we use the word media well 
we have some really high quality media and then we have some trashy media. Like we can't just use all of these things in the same breath. Exactly. Yeah. And for sure, especially when like, again, the whole, the whole familial dynamic just throws, um, I guess you could say it's an, it's an interesting concept, especially because now you have, there's also the hierarchy that goes into play as well. You have the grandparents who have each of their own values. Then you have the mother and then the father. And then, as you said, there's the cool uncle on one side and maybe the aunt that you're not so fond of on the other (laughs) side, but she's got some nice things to say. And then you also, uh, if you're like in a, if you've got siblings, if you are the youngest, that changes a whole lot of things because then you kind of end up in some families, you'll end up getting the short end of the stick a lot with the, uh, with your older siblings, who knows, they might push you around. And then you may see that as like, well, I don't want my values to be shaped by that or my morals to be shaped by how they're treating me. And then vice versa, if you happen to be the eldest, um, like myself, since I'm the eldest of three, where my actions and my morals and values can shape my younger siblings, whether they can, whether they'll look at me as a quote unquote example of how to be, or they'll look at myself and my actions, my morals and values as something as what not to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that from, from what you're saying, that there is also a little bit of, of nature involved in here, right? Like there might be one yeah. sibling, there, there might be one sibling, and we don't know exactly why it is that she gets along better with great, you know, great Aunt Sally, whereas your older sibling gets along better with Uncle Ted, right? Like, and there's, there is some nature into that as to why there is. But I think also your, your, your ranking in, in the sibling hierarchy also maybe matters. Maybe if you're an older sibling, there's more of an onus to be really serious. So you're maybe attracted more to the serious members of the family because you know that there's a great responsibility on your shoulders. Whereas you're, if you're like the fifth brother over here, you're, you know, you, the, the, the expectation isn't as high. So it's cool for you to follow in the footsteps of like, you know, quirky Uncle Ted and then, and then get exactly. on some, you know, so like, you know, I, I think that's very, that's very interesting. And I think that there might be, you know, you know, in, in regards to nature with like, uh, you know, dominant and recessive genes, why it is exactly that some sub siblings are more moral or, 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 or have certain personality proclivities that we're not aware of. Yeah, and definitely, I think, and it's funny that you mentioned uh, sort of like a dominant and recessive genes too, because dominance hierarchy is very much uh what do you call it, a concept that a lot of individuals and a lot of intellectuals study especially within nature where with like animals specifically and even uh plant life as well not just humans and then the animals but also in plant life there's parasitic plant life that uh what do you call it subvert or show their dominance over um, recessive or submissive plants and the same with animals even and it's not just like carnivores it's also herbivores or omnivores where there's packs there's always that like leader that sort of leads or there's that one quote-unquote alpha <laughs> alpha male <laughs> to put it that sort of runs the shots you know or and then in people at least you say with humans you find that like in the workspace the uh again, very much like the family. Sometimes the the father figure is the dominant one. He calls the shots. He's the one who's going to be like, you know, this is in our family, like mm. especially in a Judeo-Christian ethic, if growing up was raised in a Christian household. So with the father would put his foot down and say, you know what, these are, our, these are our values. These are our Christian values. 
we're going to go to church on these days, we're going to read the Bible on these days, and we're going to follow these, um, these values and these moral ethics. Sometimes it can be flipped where the, where the mother runs the show. And then they'll have a completely different set. It could be, and even if it remains the same uh, religiously, mm-hmm. again, using Judeo, uh, Judeo-Christianity as an example, almost as a personal example, sometimes the mother will take that in a different uh, way where they would be, they would start to see more, I guess you could say, not say polar opposite than let's say what the father would do, but similar, but yet different approach to some things. Now this is, so in each family unit then, there might be one figure that's pull, that's like holding the reins, right? And it's like, you have like all these like different personalities, Uncle Ted and so forth, but it's really grandma that's holding the reins and reining in Uncle Ted and making sure, you know, Uncle Ted can do some wild stuff, but ultimately grandma's going to rein Uncle Ted in and make sure that he's still falling in line and so forth. And it's interesting that like, it could be the mother, it could be the father, it could be a grandparent and so forth that's really calling the shots here. Um, but the families tend to at least have boundaries and to have like railroad tracks that kind of are in the vision of the the most archetypical or, or most powerful figurehead in 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 that in, in that family. And that's interesting because, as we know, uh, Luke, you may not be aware of this. People die, <laughs> and then and then, <laughs> and, then and, that, and that and that can actually just put the whole character or the whole flavor or the whole morality of a family unit in flux if the one holding the reins happens to pass away or leave the family for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting in that sense, if a, if the, if the head of the, say like the moral giver for lack of better words passes on, especially if it's like the grandmother or the grandfather, the um, regardless if it's the older matriarch or the older patriarch, then then we have we either get uh, another f- uh, family individual, another individual in the family that takes on that role. We'll see that role and try to fill in that gap that they left with the mm. same values and the same morals that they said. You're like, this is how this is how grandma did it. This is how grandpa did it. Um, so we're gonna. So I'm going to take over for them as they passed. Since they passed on, they passed that torch to me, and this what I'm going to do with the family, or we can have the opposite where there will be a family member who steps in and says, you know what? I didn't like the way they did things. We're going to do things different now. We're going to, we're going to create a whole new tradition. We're going to change gears here. We're not going to, we're not going to have the, uh, the same old, same old that they instilled in us. And they can be like, well, that's valuable. Great. I think it's time to move on from that. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I think this happens, especially, you know, in America, you know, the, 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 the drop of the nuclear family, there's a lot more step parents being involved, a, a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, a, a lot of other forces that are coming into the family. And uh, a child may go through several regime changes over the cor- before they reach the age of 18 or 21, however you want to classify adulthood. There might be, you know, several regime changes. They might, they might be under like a strong grandma up until the age of nine. And then their mom is kind of running the show for four years. And then mom gets remarried and now there's a stepdad. And now stepdad also has his own values. So that's very interesting that like all of these family units are in high levels of flux and, and high levels of variation. 
at any given point. And then what makes things even more complicated is once that child is of age and they graduate high school or college, or they can like financially separate from their family and have their own place, they also then have the freedom to say, well, screw this family dynamic. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm calling the shots now for myself and I'm creating my own show and I'm creating my own sense of morals. And then there's a lot of questions about where those morals come from. Right. Um, which actually is a great segue into, well, at least the text that I kind of prepared for this uh, was the Nietzsche's, Friedrich Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, where he talks about two separate, um, and he doesn't really, to briefly say this, he doesn't really argue for either, uh, more, uh, either morality, but rather sort of offers a, again, as the title suggests, a genealogy, a historical view of how morals uh, came to be in a lot of societies. And he distinguishes between it. There's the master morality, which originated from the nobles or the, um, which is equates to good in a sense. So if we're speaking like in a class system of say medieval England, like with castles and whatnot, you had the nobles <laughs> who would live. And then you had the slave morality, which was instilled by the commoner or to use a, to use a word that uh, they, uh, they had was uh, the plebeians. Mm. That makes sense. And the nature of the master morality was that they instilled their own by using the will to power, they instilled their own morality and values. They create their own morality and values for themselves and then instill that against the common folk. Because they are noble, they have that power. Create their own values, creating their own morals, and then putting it over, using that, putting that will over the commoners. That makes this, sense. So in that no, sense, this the, is really yeah. interesting because like when I think of the middle ages, I always think of, oh, it was just the Catholic church calling the shots here. And they were the ones kind of doling out morals. Now, what you're saying is that the nobles had their own set of, of moralities and then um, the, the peasants had their set of morals. Could you give a few examples of how they differed? What would be the difference between like the moralities of a noble person and the, and the, and the morals of a, of a commoner? Yeah, and uh, especially with Nietzsche's case, the the morality of a nobleman would be, or a noble person would be very much like power focused. It's very much like we are in power, and we have the strength to keep ourselves in power. And then whatever keeps them in power, basically helps them sort of instill that over these sort of the commoner, it's very much um, whatever they create, the masters, their actions instead of out of like, um, especially nowadays where a, we can interpret uh, charity as a good, there's more like control and hmm. servitude and instilling that servitude against the commoners is their version of good. That's the noble or master morality. While slave morality, uh, Nietzsche writes that it's very historically is when he's, cause he's writing again from a historical perspective, historically comes from the Judeo Christian um, and as a cultural Judeo Christianity, not so much religious, but cultural, where the where the church or these the commoners with the church try to undermine the the nobles by painting themselves as the good, then projecting the uh, projecting this idea of evil or bad against the nobles, saying because we are we are oppressed, they use their power, their 
uh, noble morality against us, that must mean they are evil and we are good. Therefore, we must undermine that and hmm. become good. Now, this 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 is so. So, in other words, the 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 peasant is is kind of like beholden to a a a more empathetic, if you would, type of morality, like common decency, so. things like common decency, whereas nobles are not beholden to that whatsoever. Everything that, like one noble speaking to another, yeah, I got my peasants in line. I, I can keep, and this kind of comes back to the uh, the Karl Marx line, like, you know, religion is like the uh, the opium of the, of the masses or something, something to that effect. I'm wondering wh- why, why it is that the peasants don't even take it a step further and say, geez, these really, 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 really rich people aren't all that nice and aren't all that empathetic. Why don't we just not listen to them anymore? I'm wondering. I'm wondering what's stopping them from just even taking it one more little step and saying these people are on a different wavelength. Let, let's just completely sever ourselves from them whatsoever. Yeah, and actually, Nietzsche do, uh, Nietzsche does go uh, sort of explain that a bit, where he brings up the revolts of the revolts of the Jewish against like the Romans, or mm. he also gives the example of the French Revolution. As, a, as another example of where, where people who um, sort of embody the, again, the common folk, the slave morality, and uses that uh, as a form of, and he uses the, it, the, the English word is resentment, but he specifically writes um, with the French resentment, which is a step further where it's very vindictive and it's, it's, not, just, it's not just harboring the... Um, this feeling of revenge but it's taking that a step further and acting upon it because you have the it's the desire for revenge taken put into action and that's resentment and when we have the people with the um, slave morality put that into action then again it's all projection against the uh what do you call those who embody the noble morality and then you know again we have for example he used the example of the french revolution and how that took place, where it's like men and women and, you know, people with the slave morality took that as an uprising moment and then projected their slave morality as the good. Like, we are the good. We are right, the right. Uh, you know, you can you can see that like uh, in the musical Les Mis, the movie with uh, <laughs> Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman, where they're singing, I guess, that triumphant song in that middle of the alleyway. We the people. So, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I can't sing, exactly but... <laughs> Um, that exact moment is just like we the people against the the hires the nobles you know mm-hmm. and so there's also this idea that i mean you know I, I feel like see when nietzsche uses the word like slave ethics right it kind of almost gives it like a bad a bad rap in a way like man you, you guys mm-hmm. are, are like slaves in a way but it actually is 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 like a virtuous ethic in, in the sense that like it, it might preach that like man i have enough food to eat but my neighbor over there is starving to death. Let me let me give them some bread. Let, let me like, you know, cheer them up a little bit and, and so forth. And 
it isn't it isn't um, on on the platter of like I need to control my neighbor or I need to to have mastery over them and so forth. You know, so I, I think in, in some ways it might actually be like the higher form of ethic or the true form of ethic because it really is teaching people to 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 be good to one another, which I think it's a very simplified way of saying it. I think that's the goal or the purpose of ethics is is to kind of create a level of of human decency and compassion amongst the masses. Yeah, I would definitely, um, I would definitely agree with that. And especially in this case, again, when he speaks, when Nietzsche writes in the historical context, he's also pointing out the fact that um, neither, like a full, it's worth mentioning that it's a full embodiment of either or on the extremes on either side aren't, isn't the correct answer. It's more of we're constantly in this conflict of the two within ourselves, where there are some days where we feel like we need to take control, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to instill my value on this specific uh, um, on this specific uh, event, you know, in our life. But then there are other days where we tend, where we embody these slave morality. So it's this tension between the two within ourselves. What he um, is what he kind of gets at, um, where when we wrestle the two together, and it's just like. Uh, that is kind of the, I guess you could say, like the daily life, and especially in the modern sense as well. Yes, yes. I, I think I think you're actually describing some moral qualms that I'm having within myself in in certain ways. <laughs> I think I think you really, I really, I really feel like you, you know, like like you're really touching upon it because, on one hand, Luke. I want to be a really nice guy. I really, really do. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to help other people. But I do realize that if I completely relinquish control, people are going to spit on me and take advantage of me like there's no tomorrow. Like I, I think if anyone says, brothers and sisters, come feast in my house, your house is going to get trashed and all your jewelry is going to be gone in like five seconds flat. Oh, and I, you know, you know, like, like, <laughs> so I, I think that, that in the modern age, I think all of us are on a day-to-day basis. And, and on Tuesday, we might be, you know, super generous and benevolent. And then on Wednesday, we, you know, we have like something bad happens to us. Someone burns us and takes advantage of us. And then we got like our master mindset, like I'm taking control of this situation. I'm, I'm carefully screening these people moving forward and so forth. And this is actually something I think that each of us want to. And, and I think I've discussed this with my, um, my priest friend, Sam, is that there's always like when we're alone or, or we're like, like we, when we're alone, we always want to ascribe to being like this Christ-like figure. And then we're surrounded by other people, like reality just like slaps us across the face. (laughs) And we're like, no, 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 no. Master mentality all the way right now. Like I'm, I'm not about to get martyred for what I believe like this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's a dog eat dog world out there. So it's like, I got to, watch out for myself and myself only and put my foot down in things that, uh, what do you call it, that benefit myself and that won't allow others to like hurt me in that sense. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I, I, I recently, you know, I, I was, I've been getting into some arguments with some people and I'm actually going to use this as a, as a moral question to you, Luke. I, I am, I have reached a stage in my life, Luke, where I only believe in helping people that show some degree of reciprocity or gratitude. And when I say gratitude, I'm not a very exacting or demanding figure, Luke. Just, hey, Aaron, thank you for taking the time. Hey, Aaron, I I really appreciate that. Hey, my friend, no worries. 
again, I don't need you to show up to my house with lavish gifts or something like that. And the reason I've developed this moral code, Luke, about only helping people who are somewhat appreciative or, or there is some level of value and, and reciprocity in these relationships is I've been terribly burned in my life. You know, I've helped a lot of people and they kind of just spat all over me, walked all over me. You know, I was sort of the, uh, the, the wonderful, like, like the bath, like not even a doormat, the bathroom mat where you like, just like, kind of like, like, like just rub your, your greasy feet on before hopping in the shower. And (laughs) it's just like, I've gotten to a point where it's like, I I do consider myself like a, a fairly decent human being. However, I've developed a moral code where I only want to help people who I can see progress, who I can see that I'm benefiting and so forth. And that just makes me feel good. Yeah, I'm selfish that I want to feel good. Like I help that person and they're doing great now. They listen to my advice or whatever it is. And I've actually gotten a lot of hate for this because a lot of people are like, a, tr- a true good person does things without without expecting anything in return. And 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 like I'm getting a lot a lot of a lot of that hate right now. But I I would now now based on what Nietzsche just said and, and the way that you so wonderfully described that I'm like no, I'm kind of just shifting between a master and slave mentality in making that decision. Yeah, it's you know it's a lot of times when we try to help someone out who doesn't doesn't reciprocate or they don't i guess you could say who are unappreciative you know they or they take advantage of whatever we do or whatever we say it's you know it's unfortunate and a, a, a huge help for my, myself too since i i really enjoy really enjoy helping people in the sense as well but a thing is that i that's sort of personally um to kind of step away from each of us for a sec personally is like well if they don't if they end up being what do you call it using myself or as like a doormat or as you um, <laughs> describe it as a bathroom mat even, <laughs> um, that's sort of like a that's sort of a reflection on their character in that sense not our own and while yet again people will call that whole selective it, the, the whole selective process of, I guess, you assisting an individual, selfish. One can argue that there really is no such thing as a completely selfless act. This was a huge topic that got brought up in, you know, in a theology class of mine back in uh, college, where it's just like, okay, well, then there's selfish acts, but then there really isn't a 100% like altruistic, selfless act. There's always a f- there's always a little bit in there that regardless of how how much someone like you know whether it's a pastor or a life coach or you know some random person on the internet that's leaving a hate comment um no matter how much they try to tr- convince you that you're selfish or whatever there's always going to be like even with them like if they give money to a homeless guy or they you know go work at the shelter at a homeless shelter you know giving food there's always a sense of pleasure that you're going to get from that and it's like that's and that pleasure feels good i'm going to be honest it feels great to like to have that like you're making a difference or like you just you know help this person in like just a little bit in their life regardless but that doesn't mean that's 100% selfless you're still have that quote unquote selfish feeling where it's just like well i feel good as well it's like i feel good for the action that i took to help this other individual so i don't so i think like this is um it's a it's a it's a loaded question and it's a loaded it's a you know one that 
again, as you said, like people will get into arguments for hours upon hours, but I don't, but I feel like they're sort of reducing the whole, um, like charity in this sense, they're reducing charity to a binary where it's either selfish or selfless. And it's either 100% this end or 100% this end when it's actually, again, like the master and slave morality, it fluctuates between the two. It's this conflict between the two of how we feel, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I, and I think, I, I think that's very fair to say. And I agree. I don't think there is a 100% altruistic act there. I don't care who you say you are, unless you are some kind of godlike deity, you're not committing you know, acts of, of kindness um, and not getting anything out of return. And that getting mm-hmm. something out of return could just be good Jiminy Cricket like feeling inside of like, I yeah. did the right, you know, I, I did the right thing there. And I, I think that's, it's important. Like, we, like a part of, of my podcast is that we have to be real with ourselves. And I'll take it even a step further and say that sometimes let's just say you're helping somebody and you're not getting any good feelings from it. And that person is taking advantage of you in some regard, you're actually doing that person a bit of disservice because you're kind of teaching them a behavior. You're teaching them that like, Oh, doormat over there is always going to be nice to me. Doormat is always, is always going to to just open up their door and they're always going to let me come in. And when I'm done with doormat, I just throw it away and that's it. And in a way, you're not actually teaching that person to become a better, a better human being. I'm not saying you have to go on a whole tirade and scold them for three hours, but you could say, all right, you know, it doesn't, doesn't seem like my efforts are being appreciated here. I think I'm going to step away from this scene for a while, or, you know, and that could be a couple years or it could be five years. I don't know what the right number is, but I think that that's actually a moral act in itself to be like, in order for this person to evolve as a, as a better human being, they can't just get into the, the habit of abusing people. And I've actually, I've actually had friends that, that did go more of a delinquent path in their, in, in their lifetime. Like, like throughout when they, they were, they started going on the path of delinquency when they were teenagers and then early into life. I'm not saying that this is the defining variable, but one of the most defining things that I've noticed is that each of them had at least one doormat parent. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's the, here's my credit card. Go go shopping. Yeah. Oh oh, you got suspended from school. Um, why don't you just stay home? I'll make you some hot cocoa and you can play some video games. You know, I've noticed that pattern that each of these kids that kind of um, grew up to kind of be a bit more reckless with with the way that they interact with the world and with other people, they had this like one kind of martyr, what what I call like the martyr parent that just sacrifice. And the martyr parent thinks that they're actually doing a good thing. And maybe even society is praising them for it. Like, God bless you, martyr parent. God bless you that you, oh, your kid was arrested and you're still there, you know, doing all of this for them. God bless you. You're such a great parent. But I'm actually of the opinion that martyr parent isn't actually doing a huge service for their child because they're kind of enabling behavior and not giving them the space to sort of grow. Yeah, specifically like with the mo- the martyr parent uh, model, where it's like there has to be a balance with with that. Like, yes, you want to be there for your child, especially when they make mistakes or when they screw up uh, in some degree or another. And yes, you know, as the parent, you want to be like, hey, like you screwed up. It's all right. You know, I still love you. But then there's the 
there's all caps, but (laughs) you you have to take responsibility or you have to face the consequences of your action. Uh, You know, every action has a resulting consequence. And if, if that isn't taken account, you know, if that isn't taken into account or that's that responsibility isn't taken, then it's just going to continue allowing for that. So there has to be a point where it's just like, Hey, you're, you know, you're my child, you screwed up and I still love you, but but you have to put the foot down and then go further say, but this is what you did. And now you have to, you got to face the consequences. Like if, especially if you're like you're younger, you know, your younger child, uh, especially as a boy, uh, myself, like, you know, drawing on the walls with like crayon or Sharpie or whatever. And you know, like that's, it's a very like childish example or childhood yeah. example of that. And, you know, and that can go up to like, say like a heinous crime, like theft or, um, assault or something like that but it's just like they have to take the exam uh what do you call it the consequence of their actions whether in later in life if it's something as serious as you know theft or assault or something even graver than that then it's like okay jail time fine community service etc etc where the parent can still say hey i still love you but acknowledging that hey you did that and that wasn't all right Yes. Like, yes. That wasn't all right. And you have to, you have to take responsibility for that. I think, I think one of the problems, Luke, that I'm noticing about humanity is that we're really, really, really bad at finding the equilibrium. I think, I think this is something that we just cannot do as a species that we're really grappling with. And the, the, the case point example is, let's say you have a, a son or daughter, right? And they get like a B plus in something, but you know that they studied for that exam. They studied really hard to do well at it. Well, I think that's the time to have more of a slave mentality and be like, hey, you tried your best. I saw I saw you were up last night trying. Don't sweat it. Maybe maybe that teacher's a little bit of a jerk and a little bit of a stickler. Yeah. Like, you know, that's okay to, to have the slave mentality in that, you know, or, or the, I hate that word slave mentality, like the mentality of compassion, right? Like the, yeah. the, 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 the mentality of brotherhood or sisterhood or, or just of general compassion and goodwill to fellow human beings. However, if your kid hasn't been to school in three weeks, is failing all class, and just getting in trouble with the law, you need to shift into the controlling person. You need to have, you then have to adapt the noble mindset of like, I am going to be like the nobles right now. And I'm going to take away my kid's cell phone ASAP, cut off all the, all the allowance money, just make their, you know, the video games, the PS4, PS5, or whatever is getting locked in a vault somewhere. And only I know the, (laughs) only I know the passcode to that. And I'm like, that's the moral thing to do. So in, 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 in the, in the case of the kid getting a B plus, the moral thing to do is to have the slave or the compassion mindset. But when your kid is really going off the rails, then you need to train, you need to change your moral framework to the noble um, moral mindset of like, I need to lock my kids video games away. Yeah. And it's very much like you have to draw that line. You know, you have to draw that line somewhere. And especially with, especially with parenting, I can't imagine, do understand, uh, like working, working with, uh, what do you call it? Cause you can say parents to an extent, um, because a lot of, what do you call it? A lot of people I interact with over at my day job, are parents, um, who come into our, who are customers, um, I understand where they're coming from with their, like with their child, like they want to look out for what's best for their child. But at the same time, we have to, all of us have to understand that like, that doesn't, we kind of have to embody not just once, again, as you say, one side of the spectrum, we have to embody 
both sides, maybe take a little bit. It's no, again, before, as we said before, it's not a hundred percent on one side. It's not a hundred percent on the other side. It could be 75, 25 one day. It could be 50, 50 another day. It could be 45, 55 on a, on another day. You know, it, there has to be this balance like in the, with the, with the child who's skipping school or ditching class, failing all his classes, it's like, okay, like all of your privileges are going to get taken away until you show signs of improvement until you, and you set that line say like, until you raise your GPA up to a full grade point, you know, because you're failing, if you get it back up to a B plus. So then that B plus is that for what that B plus was the maximum for one child, the B plus is now the bare minimum, the hurdle to get to for the, um, for the child who's acting up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the problem with a lot of our moral structures is that we don't evaluate context. We don't, you know, we have these moral presuppositions and moral codes, and we try and apply the same set of morals in every given situation. So if, if my moral, um, if my moral laws say compassion above all else, okay, and let's just say you're talking with somebody, and they and they and they tell everybody, hey, hey, Luke my morals say that the highest virtue is compassion. You might be like clapping and be like, whoa, great person over there. <laughs> but, then, but then that person is not really looking at the context of what's going on. Like what if there's some kind of violent felon in their neighborhood that's doing crazy stuff? And oh, compassion, compassion. This person can be instantly rehabilitated in a three month training program. You know, it's like that person is not really following a moral lifestyle and they're kind of, I would argue following a very lazy moral code because they're not adapting and shifting their morals to fit the context. They're just saying compassion above all else or, or this one thing above all else. And they're not really fine tuning their, their morals to fit uh, the particular situations that arise in life. I would say that like, that's the danger of embodying a singular, uh, what do you call it? Singular virtue, you know, like there's, there's these, um, there are all these virtues, again, compassion being one of them, like if we're going to view from a biblical standpoint, then you have the three charities, they've got hope, love and faith. Then you also have like, and uh, other biblical virtues that are out there like compassion, helping the marginalized, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But embodying one and ignoring the other is like, biologically speaking, like if you've got one problem, if you've got two problems or like, what, what's that thing? It's like, if I've got a headache, then, okay, I'm going to ask someone to punch me in the gut so I can focus on the gut pain instead of the, instead of the, uh, the headache that I have, because all my, all my uh, mental space is focused on one thing. I ignore the other. And by ignoring the other, you are doing a disservice to those who need the other uh, virtue, you know, the other, the other morality where it's just like, well, like say, if you have compassion, one, one example, like if you have compassion for the homeless, you volunteer in the homeless shelter, you know, you donate money to um, help rehabilitate a lot of these people. Um, but you're very, what do you call it? You're very indifferent or you're kind of cold to say on the circumstance of how they got homeless, say, uh, there's, you know, cause there's their varying degrees. Like uh, there's a homeless person who was evicted, uh, wrongfully evicted because, you know, they were wrongfully fired from their job. Therefore they couldn't make rent. There's an, you know, individual like that, 
then there's also the individual, you know, perhaps another homeless person who um, was wrong, I guess you say, who was addicted to some kind of substance abuse, because that stuff is, uh, substances are, can be a very addictive and dangerous thing. And then if we're selective on who, whichever one deserves our help, then at that point, we're not really it's almost like a dishonest form of that virtue that we're trying to, because we're being very selective with it. We're taking one over the other when that, when, if we're going to, if we're going to embody in this example, compassion, and I hope I'm not, it's just an example. It's not a blanket. It's, it's just a general example. It's not like a blanket statement that this is how it is. But for example's sake, if, if we're being selective with the, with our compassion in this example, like, why how is it that um it's like is that really compassion are we really being compassionate in that sense i'll give you i'll give you like a, a perfect example and, and again like i said you know um you know on truth island sometimes we get into some really dark waters but we have to go there i did have a friend who did volunteer in a in a homeless shelter and again, overwhelmingly, most people were, were grateful for his presence and so forth. But there was this one guy who basically said, you know, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And my, my friend said, okay, let me get you a sandwich. And my friend goes and he brings the man a cheese sandwich. And, and the homeless guy takes the cheese sandwiches, the cheese sandwich and throws it back at him and say, no, I want tuna fish, you know, and just like, like, yells at them and okay fine maybe that guy had mental problems and a host of other issues that cause that kind of behavior but i think that it's it's a taboo in our society to say that there is like the deserving oliver twist homeless from i you know i'm going to use this word the undeserving homeless or the homeless that aren't really grateful for what little there's out there okay maybe that guy really wanted a tuna fish sandwich but if my friend in that moment just smiled and said i do apologize sir i will give you a tuna fish sandwich i'll be back momentarily my friend is actually doing that homeless guy a, a huge disservice because he's teaching that homeless person that you can throw sandwiches at people and that's an adequate way to receive services and and to seek help and mm -hmm. I think that our society does have to make these distinctions between people who are highly, 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 highly deserving of our compassion. Like these people are down on their luck and when we help them, they feel good. I feel good. We're, we're growing together. We're climbing, we're climbing that mountain together. We're getting into higher plateaus from people who you're basically, you know, from the people who are basically willing to throw a cheese sandwich in your face and demand more of you. And it's not that that person is completely, you know, incorrigible and just like we can never help them, but maybe they just need like a couple years of being ignored before they develop the skill set to be like, hi, I'm a little hungry. You wouldn't happen to have tuna fish in that, in that um, refrigerator over there, you know? And I think that we're afraid of a society to do that. We would consider that to be just evil and that if we're not Christ-like and blanket in our compassion, there's something wrong with us and there's something evil with us where I'm saying, no, we actually have a moral obligation to make these very fine-tuned distinctions. Yeah, I can definitely see where that, where that, uh, where I can definitely see how that, where that comes from and how that plays, uh, plays in the fact. And it's, it, it's hard, especially with such a huge, with such a, um, what do you call it? A large again non a non-binary issue such as homelessness where there's so many different um 
factors kind of play into sort of play into the situations like who knows where where this uh what do you call individuals coming from you know um who knows what caused the uh the outburst in the sense the thing is it's just like we can't a lot of times we can't ever we can't ever really like know 100 percent uh we'll always just make assumptions or regard uh or whatever but i feel like people have boundaries of what they can and what they can and can't uh what do you call it handle especially today there we have again with everything going on sociopolitically we gotta maybe set aside the phone for a while just to kind of just as a again a really an example in that sense but for for this for i guess you could say this specific uh example like i guess you could say it's more or less like taking a step back and maybe you know, having the resources to be able, and then again, not saying that, not saying that your, uh, your friend did, uh, what do you call it? Did he ever go back and give him the tuna sandwich? Or I, don't, was that you I, just... I don't think he did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause then there's like, there's moments where you kind of have to take Cause then work in retail, the retail is kind of a, uh, not, it's not a similar, but you do have moments where someone kind of like spits back into your face because what they wanted was something different uh and again completely what do you call it? i'm not invalidating the whole uh what do you call it mental health issue mental health epidemic that we're facing especially within the homeless epidemic but we have the um us humans all of us every single one of us have boundaries as to what we can and what we can't uh you know handle some may be able to see that and say like you know and then have that sense of like teaching moments like hey you know like you got to understand that that's not okay you know like we gotta you know we gotta work on that you know where you can't demand something and expect to get it let's try this again um some people will end up because they're because their boundary limits them from be like you know what I need to take a step back from the situation because it's affecting myself, my expecting my mental health um, in a negative way. I need to, I need to sort of distance myself from this and allow, you know, another person to take over, especially where, again, where we got like, there's, there's varying degrees, you know, I, there isn't really like a hundred percent answer for these, but again, I think it all come kind of boils down to like, we have our limits and different people have their limits and other people can step in for us and sort of, um, I guess you could say, do what we can't do just as we can do what others can't do. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what you, you touch upon kind of goes to like Socrates, know thyself. Now, if I was in my friend's position, I would not get that guy a tuna fish sandwich. I, I just absolutely would not because I know myself well enough to know that if I got that guy a tuna fish sandwich after he threw the cheese sandwich in my face, I would have never ending resentment for that mm-hmm. person forever. Like, 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 like it would, I don't think that resentment could be undone in some way because I, I think when we, you know, when we act the, the Christ-like role, right? Like, like, let's just say that the Christ-like answer to that situation is like, right away, sir, a tuna fish sandwich coming up. When we act that role and we deliver the tuna fish sandwich, we have, as human beings, as, as, as flesh and blood human beings, we develop high levels of resentment that actually, especially if these occurrences happen on multiple instances, 
it's actually like compound interest. The the the, the mm-hmm. resentment builds up like compound interest, and that 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 can destroy our inner our inner health and our inner well being, and may manifest in u- ugly other manifestations. We might, you know, after you deliver that tuna fish sandwich you might find yourself drinking more. You might actually go out to a bar or you might actually engage in more drinking because you're like, man, the world is really a crappy place. Like I, you know, the evil seem to, to prevail or whatever. Whereas I'm like, if you're just honest with yourself in that situation and saying, no, the way that you asked for this was in an unjust manner, you're not being rewarded for unjust behavior. You can actually sleep well at night knowing that you performed a just deed and a, and a just action. And, and the, the last thing I'll say on this is that for Tolstoy, the worst thing that you can provide someone is pity. It is the absolute worst thing because pity implies that that person is incapable of change. It actually, it actually is the worst thing to offer because when you mm-hmm. pity somebody, you're like, you know, you're in, you poor creature, you're incapable of change. I must bend over and I must accommodate you in every which way. And that's actually kind of a sin in itself because you're taking that person and thinking so lowly of them. Like you must think so highly of yourself and so lowly of this other person that you're not even willing to have faith that they're capable of changing. And, and that pity kind of becomes like a, like a, a, a form of, of like dehumanization in a sense. Yeah, it's, I would argue, I, w- I would actually go as far as to argue that the, uh, the Christ-like thing to do in, such, in, in that situation would actually be, would actually be the teaching moment. Instead of, instead of being, I guess you could say, subservient and giving the tuna sandwich or whatever, you actually, I, I feel like that the Christ-like thing to do was actually be like, hey, look, that's not okay. We got to, you know, we got something to work on. Let's to have a sense that a level, because again, varying degrees, it's never, it's never a binary thing, a varying degree of a compassion where you have compassion for the individual. It's like, okay, they're coming from a perspective that I may not know too much about, but let's approach this from, a, let's approach this from an angle that instead of giving into whatever, giving into whatever their demands are or something like that, Let's kind of go with a, I guess you could say, because then again, as you said, it just, it builds that if you kind of like give into that, it builds that resentment. But again, I feel like, if I, again, I would argue that the Christ-like thing would be to go back and, you know, you can pick up the sandwich or whatever, and then <laughs> give, <laughs> give them, give them the whole, again, the sort of the, uh, the option like, hey, look, you know, that wasn't all right. Um, I understand there's a lot, there has to be, you know, there has to be a lot going on, uh, going on with you, especially, you know, right now it's, it's like they might have, because that could have been that reaction could have been out of their resentment or their resentment towards, you know, towards yourself because you, there, you are in a more, a bit quote unquote better position society, but it's almost to like trying to not make this sound like I'm some kind of classist because it, again, it's a very, it's a very slippery slope. Um, and I don't want my words to be misconstrued, misconstrued here, but I feel again, like the, the moral or ethical thing, especially in, especially with a Christ-like uh, mind is to not give in to the subservience, like, okay, let me just get you that, but rather use that experience. Like, Hey, you know what? Like the action wasn't okay. That was not an accept. That was kind of, that was unacceptable. Now here's why, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
this is this is the reason why that wasn't acceptable you asked for something and then i came out and then the way you reacted like wherever you're coming from that's not okay now let's try to sort of reconcile that you know and let's try to let's have another time let's like let's try to do better you know and i you know i wholly agree with like the uh, what you said about tolstoy with like pity because pity again as you said dehumanizes the other individual but rather instead of pity mm. we take empathy instead of because empathy can devolve i feel like into pity pretty easily but using empathy from a humanistic perspective where it's like hey like at the at the base of it all regardless of like social class or whatever we're both like you and i i'm on the west coast and you're on the east coast we live in completely different counties you know but like we're still human at the base of it yes. you know just yes. as much as i am human with um you know or like your friend with the with the homeless man they're both human and at the heart of it okay so i'm from a human to human nature ethically and morally let's work this out you know and i feel like that's how we can move forward in a in a more positive direction rather than building up that resentment that yes. a lot of people do now this is re- now you've actually got the wheels really spinning very nicely in my head luke I, and i want to run this by you okay I had this kind of talk uh, with my uh, priest friend, Sam, and we also discussed that every prophet, including Jesus, has given into some form of mild levels of aggression at one point or another. With Moses, it's breaking the Ten Commandments and mm-hmm. just flipping out on the Hebrews being like, uh, get rid of that golden calf ASAP. And, and you know, like think about this. God gave you the Ten Commandments and you break that thing. You actually break mm-hmm. that thing that God himself, you know, Jesus, uh, he goes into the temple and he sees that there's mon- money changing going on there and flips a table or gets gets upset, right? Even Jesus had a point in his life where he's like, enough is enough. Yeah. And now we're even going to go all the way to the top floor of the building and we talk about Hashem. And even Hashem in, in the in the story of like Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he destroys like an entire city. Uh, he floods the entire earth and, and just wipes out everybody except Noah and his animal friends. So if we really think about this, a lot of people, you know, attack the Old Testament and they attack the New Testament and say, wait a minute now, why would an old, why would a, a loving God flood an entire earth and just wipe out an entire like you know like a huge portion of the species and again like i said we're talking about these in a mythological way but the the idea behind this is is that maybe god doesn't want to resent us maybe god gets angry and destroys sodom and gomorrah and floods the whole earth because he he also switches between being compassionate and also being controlling and, and he kind of like does these things because he doesn't want to resent us as a species. He doesn't want to look and not be proud and, and be like, I hate, I hate those homo sapiens down there. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of why he does that. I think this, I remember this Hebrew school teacher once told me that God um, deals mercy with his right hand because the right hand is the dominant hand for most people. And he deals like justice with the left hand because the left hand is the weaker hand, but he still uses both his hands. He may, right. he may be stronger on the merciful side, that's his right hand. But if he has to, if he sees that there's no choice and he must use his left hand, so be it, he will do it. Yeah, it actually, that is 
laid out in um, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters were screw tape the the older demons telling screw tape the younger demons saying like he takes he um, he gives with his right as he takes with his left yeah um, and in that sense since since we're speaking I think the issue since we're speaking of it mythologically I think a lot of times the issue is that we this is also another thing discussed in uh what do you call it a theology class of mine where it's like okay where we have a where we have a divine being such as god who holds these uh properties these um perfect properties the omni properties you know um, omniscience uh omnipresent and also um omnipotent you know and then various other you know very much perfect properties because uh as uh, what's his name anselm famously made with the ontological argument that's just like god is the most perfect being that we can think of and he's even more perfect than that (laughs) Um, (laughs) like i think he used the island as an example where it's like think of the most perfect island you can think of the most perfect like the best island now now something even more perfect than that that you cannot imagine thinking of now that's God. And, you know, he got, he got a bunch of, he got a bunch of crap for it from another priest. And then he responded. It was kind of like, it it was a whole, it was a whole mess, but that, that was like the start of such an ontological argument of the existence of God. And I feel like people kind of, if we're speaking from a religious, specifically a Judeo Christian um, perspective in the sense of there's one and something, again, this was, bring it back to uh what was discussed in that class in that class of mine it was just like there's one end where man has this sort of we have these a gamut of emotions where we fluctuate between anger you know sorrow uh what do you call it and then varying degrees of both malice and then um deep deep um what do you call it like lament as well but to an extent one can argue like theologically speaking of course since we're speaking since we're speaking uh, bib- uh, as far as like biblically from a mythological perspective, you can argue that man showed imperfect emotions while a divine being, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend time arguing this because it's going to open a huge can of worms, <laughs> but the divine being who holds these perfect properties shows the perfected version of these emotions mm. or these. Um, so it's a perfected form of, anger a perfected form of sorrow while humans we show an imperfect an imperfect form of anger or you know sorrow if that makes sense Um, i I hope no i'm really loving this actually i'm really loving it because and it goes back to genesis like we are created in in his image right so in his image means that god gave us anger therefore he has anger he gave us joy therefore we have joy so god has all the gamuts of emotions but his application right like his application of those emotions are completely just and perfect so when he's angry that's that's how you do anger and that was exactly the right moment for you to be angry when we're angry well you know dude you could have waited 24 hours before you did that or you could have waited uh you know a, a few days before you decided to fire her or whatever you know like so yeah. we we have all of god's emotions and we have the full the full rainbow the full spectrum of anger fear and all of this other stuff but we haven't perfected 
when exactly the timing is exactly perfect and just what is that 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 crystal perfect level of anger and, and like even if we go and another thing that makes me this, now this is really going to complicate things more is what happens when you know moses is arguing with God is I think there's a few points in the desert where it's God, God's like rolls up his sleeves and he's like, I'm done with these people. I'm done. With, I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm I, like, God's like, I'm done with these people. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 hold on there. Hold on my friend. Let, let's, let's, let's work this out. So it, it's kind of interesting that in, in our mythological text, God can actually be talked to. He can actually be rationed with, mm-hmm. you can actually make deals with him and, 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 and those work to some degree. And I'm like, my goodness, like it, it seems, it seems like even in our biblical canon, God is not a hundred percent perfect. He all, there is a reliant, like there is like, I mean, like he is perfect in, in, in the sense that he may foresee the outcome already. And he may already have that kind of part scripted, but he, he, he has like a reliance system with us as human beings in that, in, in that mm-hmm. sense. Like there is there, there, like our, our careful reflection of, wait a minute, I should have been angry on Wednesday instead of um, Tuesday or something like that. That is us kind of like refining our image and getting closer to God in some way. I, I know that was probably very convoluted, but I tried my, no, no, I'm yeah, trying I totally, my best. <laughs> no, yeah, I totally get it. And all, another, another perspective that one can argue is that, is that God is sort of like in, especially in the, a lot of the biblical narratives of the old Testament, where a lot of it's like, you know, stories written from a certain perspective, it can be seen as like, okay, well maybe, or, you know, maybe God is speaking to say like, you know, Moses, the character where he's just saying like, what about um, sort of almost like there's God knows like the right answer, you know, since we're, if we're speaking like as God is being, uh, God is being, uh, you know, perfect in every aspect, but, he knows the answer that, you know, that is the right answer. And he's kind of waiting for, mm. he's sitting there waiting for like, say Moses to give the answer. It's like, okay, he's like, okay, you're there. You're like the, the, the <laughs> professor in the class who's like hearing, like hearing my long winded ramble. And he's like, okay. And like, you're getting there. And <laughs> it's like, you're almost, you're quite there, but you're not, you're like, we're, we're close. We're close. And then mm. sort of encourages the next steps. Like, and then, um, but then that also gets into the problem of like free will, I guess. But that's a, another can of worms. No, but, th- but this is actually interesting because it's kind of like maybe when God was like, "Yeah, that's it. I'm destroying these Hebrews right now," he was actually testing Moses, like in a way. He's like, mm-hmm. like he's testing Moses, and he's got he's hoping that Moses does the right thing and and argues like, "No, no, sir. Like, like please, please, please don't do this." And in a way. I think maybe Moses was also kind of getting fed up with the Hebrews and, and also was like, I'm done with these people. But then him having to talk God out of destroying them kind of showed the way for Moses to be like more compassionate mm-hmm. um, towards And an them. adequate leader. Yes, 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 yes. In that narrative too, because in specifically, I'm sorry to interrupt, but specifically I took a class on Exodus. So um, that whole, Moses, the narrative with Moses and the deliverance out of Egypt is very like, uh, what do you call it? It's one of my favorite uh, narratives, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, In that context with the golden calf, the Hebrews elected his brother uh, in this sense, <laughs> ironically, right, yeah. um, sorry guys, but, I screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's all my fault. <laughs> um, but 
they elected his brother because they were so they were impatient with Moses. They were like, Moses is spending so much time up there and he's not down here with us. Like, let's just elect Aaron. Like, he's the next best thing. Yeah. Um, I guess he's his brother. And then when Moses and then I guess you could say it's almost like with that interaction of like, I guess you could say screen cap transition to Moses and God up on the mountain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all it, it, like all uh, Star Wars prequels esque with the whole um, transition where it's just like <laughs> you have the test of the two sons in the background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the two sons in the background. <laughs> you have God sort of, um, especially with this in, within this narrative, it's almost as if God is like kind of preparing Moses almost in the sense of like to be that leader, to step up as he's like, look, I know you're always the compassionate one, and that's great, but there are also times where. And this again, this all rolls back to call it to the balance of just like, look, I know you're compassionate, and then you know these are your people. And it's like I love them, you love them, but there are times where you're gonna have to put your foot down. There yes. are times where you're gonna get frustrated, and that's understandable. And you gotta, uh, you gotta understand that you're gonna put your foot down. And then it's like, just like right now, and then freeze frame cut to <laughs> the Hebrews making this golden, uh, golden calf, and Aaron's just sitting there like. Uh, they made me do it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, I, I think, I, I and I I think that, you know, I think religion kind of, at least in the in the modern age, gets a lot of flack and, and like going to the Karl Marx argument of like, oh, religion is just the opium of the people. And maybe leaders corrupted the Bible and they kind of said, no, 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 Mr. Peasant, you need to just starve there. That's what Jesus would do, right? So that 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 mm-hmm. noble who's using the Bible to kind of oppress people and saying, no, 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 you being meek, you just, you know, taking crap from us. That's what Jesus would do. And you're going to get like a first class seat in heaven. That's mm-hmm. manipulation of the Bible. But I think the way that we're talking about the Bible uh, with like nuance and you know, having the full gambit of, of emotions and the full gambit of actions at your disposal, I actually think it breathes like new life into the Bible. Like if we actually view the Bible from, from the Moses-like perspective of like, here's a time to be compassionate and here's a time to get really angry, it actually opens up the, the door. It actually opens up the door for us to kind of go back to the Bible. And again, like there, there might be um, things on like homosexuality or whatever that we just need to get rid of or, or just aren't fitting, aren't in line with, with where we're going as a society. But I think on the by and by, by having this, this more complicated understanding of the Bible that being a good person is not just being a doormat and that you can you can be angry at people and yell at them and put your foot down and be really, really stern and maybe dish out some consequences and you're still a good person. I think we need to return to that kind of level of understanding, whether we believe the Bible or don't. Yeah, and actually Nietzsche kind of touches upon the, uh, again, the noble the noble values as um, as for instance, as a priest um, with um, the common folk, um, where the priest is a very specific type of noble, is a religious noble, and he has power, much like a sort of a you know political noble. The priest has a specific power over the um, over the common, where he uses his will to power um, to instill his holy his version of if that's a you know especially when the um, before the Reformation, um, you had the Catholic priests basically telling people, look, you want to get to heaven, 
you got to pay up. Like you got to yeah, this, indul- indulgences, this, and, yeah, right, indulgences, <laughs> papal bulls, and trans- transubstantiations, um, <laughs> like all that stuff. Like, look, you want to get to heaven, you got to buy all this full package. Um, that's it. Like it's the only way. And uh, what do you call it? They instill their their version of what is good, what is pure, what is holy against what their perspective of the common folk, the impure, the unholy. It's just like, look, because you're impure and you're unholy, you have to do this to become pure and holy. Yes, yes. And I, I think that there, there are, I think there is a instinctual thing that, that we get and, and perhaps it's our, bio, you know, it depends on your perception. Like some people believe that it was our biology that influenced the Bible. And then there's obviously others who think that it's the Bible that influences our, our, our biology and so forth. And we don't have to really get into that chicken and egg type situation. But I do think that in many respects, if we have, if we are, if you are actually reading the book for yourself and you actually are under a spiritual advisor who's not using the oppressive interpretation of like, be meek, just be meek. And you actually have a spiritual advisor or you're reading the Bible on your own. And you're using this, these morals in, in, in the nuanced, more balanced way, then I think, I think that can be a driving lever of society. And of course, of course, you know, we might be like, all right, well, look, this 20% of, of, of this, of these morals that are in this book right now, there's nothing we can do. We just, we can't, we've, we've talked about it for hours and hours. There's just nothing that we can do to salvage that. And that might be the case. It might just be like, okay, 20% of this, like, again, I, you know, in Judaism, the, the religion I was brought up in, we've got kosher, we've got um, all sorts of rules that I don't necessarily see the underlying logic behind. I, I just mm-hmm. don't. Maybe 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 somebody will come along in my life and explain it to me just so and then I'll see the the light. But right now there are parts where it's just like, well, well Aaron, you just gotta believe. You just gotta take a leap of faith. And okay, we have that part of the Bible of that kind of morals like does eating some pig make me or some bacon in the morning does that make me a bad person right we, we have we have these parts of the bible where it's like does does that bacon make me a bad person and there might not be any way to redeem that that might just be blind faith that might be where science steps in and says well the pig was a dirty animal and people probably avoided the pig because they would get sick and they would die and maybe, maybe that was edited and and added later by uh, other forces at play and so forth and we might have to do that. And that's, that's okay. We, you know, we need to be an intelligent species and, and understand where certain things are coming from. But I think that in terms of, you know, in terms of, of these books as being a moral bedrock, I think that we could still have them. And again, you have the option to believe, to read them as a believer, or you have the option to read it as mythology. But I still think whether you're doing it as an atheist mythology reader, or you're doing it as a believer, I think there's a lot of value. And I'm wondering, like, is our society really going to be able to, to stand up if we just toss the book in the garbage and say, science all the way? Well, I think the danger of the danger of that last bit is like, then we if we got rid of, uh, again, uh, 
a lot of new atheism, uh, especially the four horsemen that was very, that's very popular back. Uh, I think maybe 2000, yeah, yeah, 2000s yeah. to 10, 20 years ago. Um, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. And I forget, yeah. always forget the last one, but you know, where it's <laughs> like, let's, you know, we don't need these anymore. We're moving on. Um, especially, uh, Dawkins, who is an evolutionary biologist. Sure. Um, and the danger of that, at least from my perspective, is like, well, then would not science become a religious belief? Would not science become like, say, if we're treating, if we're treating like, say, the Bible, the Quran, the Vedic texts of Hindu, of Hinduism as, a, what do you call it, as a dogma, as a dogmatic doctrine? And then we focus so much on science and then also um, rational thought, then would not that become end up becoming a dogmatic doctrine in and of itself? You know, we start to over the over reliance. So I would say, like, it is still important to keep these and to hold on to these and say, like, look, there are um, important aspects in here, especially in coming from um, myself, who is actually a believer. Um, who who believes in the uh, what do you call it the christian religion like there are aspects um of it where you have to read it with a um with the sort of like contextual grain of salt um you know you mentioned the sort of like the whole the, there's those verses with about homosexuality the very specific one that a lot of people mention in the old testament it's just like okay historical context wise why was that written okay why like what was the reason for them writing this specifically and then turns out there was uh what do you call it a turns out there was like a pagan uh temple nearby their settlement that would conduct not just uh, what do you call it homosexual like orgies whatever that's not it wasn't condoning that specifically but also with children so and it was kind of like hey you guys need to like it was more like look like over there, you know, like you just, you guys got to focus on like, you know, repopulating the earth a little bit and it can be taken into different interpretations, but historical context was, it's not like damning the whole. So there was like a, a Jeffrey Epstein Island right next to where they were at. And it was yeah, like, that, basically. that's, that's yeah. where it's coming from. Like, like, okay, we're just writing this right now because we're, we're, we're just, it's almost as if like the people writing that at that moment were just really emotionally livid. They, they were just like emotionally like a livid, like, oh my God, there's that stuff going on over there. Let's just put this in our Bible. And you're right. Like we need to read all of these things with a grain of salt and, and then appreciate the historical context for, for the things that just aren't making sense anymore. And I think that's mm -hmm. a smart thing to do. Yeah. And it's actually, that was by uh, Thomas Aquinas or St. Thomas Aquinas who combined <laughs> Aristotelian thought with, uh, with uh, Christianity or Catholic, uh, Catholic Christianity and famously, uh, what do you call it? Wrote a lot and is credited with, we have to read specifically, we have to read the Bible not just as something like we can't just read it literally, you know, we have to take things allegorically as well. Some things may have been, you know, a metaphor, an allegory, and the whole debate whether the creation myth actually happened or whether, you know, whether certain things actually happen, you know, we have to look at it be like, okay, metaphorically, what does this say? Or did this actually happen? We may not know. Um, it's dangerous to just, to just, what do you call it, embody one aspect 100 percent, and just bulldoze your way through the text and be like this is how it is you know 
And this, and this is exactly the problem that human beings have, because it, it goes back to our, you know, cheese and tuna fish scenario here, right, where context really matters. And it actually requires a lot of critical thinking. It requires people to be extremely reflective on what exactly is going on in present day society. Um, it, it requires them to be like, again, when it comes out to punishment, you know, sometimes there needs, you might have like the same behavior, right? The same exact behavior, but the way that you deal that punishment might vary upon those two different individuals. And I've heard this from parents a lot, like, well, that punishment is really going to sting my older one. But this punishment or this way of dealing with the problem is really going to sting my younger one. So we all we all have these different contexts. We all have these different things. Like even even our own judicial system does not treat the same crime in the same way. So murder, for example, you actually get a much uh, stiffer sentence for premeditated murder. Premeditated murder is the highest form of, of murder because that means that you were drawing diagrams of some dude's house in your basement for the past three months thinking about how you're gonna get them. Whereas if you walked in on uh, your wife cheating on you or something and you were like inflamed with emotions, that's really a bad thing and you're gonna get punished for it. But in our own judicial system, we punish the person who commits murder in a premeditated, I thought about this for three months and executed this more yeah. so than the guy who just walked on on his wife cheating on him or something like that and had a moment yeah. of rage. And that's the kind of thinking that we really need in our society today, where we're looking at these, these religious texts and we're specifically applying it to like, you know, imagine this morality is like pure mathematics, right? The, the morality is pure mathematics. We need to be like the engineers of like, okay, how are we getting this pure mathematics to build that bridge over there? Yeah, definitely. Where it's just like, we kind of have to, um, and I wouldn't say cherry pick, that's, that would be the wrong word, but we would have to, you know, look at the, look at the good aspects of just like, okay, what can we, um, and actually Nietzsche does talk about punishment in the second essay of um, the genealogy of morals of how like, historically punishment was rarely used as some as a form of rehabilitation it was rarely used as such it was actually used out of resentment or uh, this desire to you were wronged in such a way where uh now you will hurt the other person out of that uh out of that resentment and to give yourself that pleasure of I was wrong, therefore I'm going to instill this. And he uses like a, he uses the example of a parent like uh, punishing their child, where it's just like the parent was wronged and was hurt, therefore they're going to punish the child, not to teach them a lesson, but to rather terrible, terrible as it sounds. Uh, what do you call it? But to hurt them for you know revenge out of resentment, and it also kind of reflects. And, you know, since you mentioned the judicial system, it also reflects a little bit on that as well. If we're going to bring in, say, like a thinker like uh, Thomas Hobbes and his gargantuan piece of work, the Leviathan, where it's like we need a government or like we need a king to like because humans are animalistic. And if you disobey the the Leviathan, the government, the king or the ruler, then you're going to be made an example of you're not, it's not to rehabilitate you back into society. It's more of, you're going to be made an example of what not to do. So that way you're going to be a warning, a display piece for everybody else uh, in this city. And uh, the, um, 
the psychologist Foucault writes that in his book, Discipline and Punish, where it's just like historically a lot of, which is also genealogy, historically a lot of these capital punishment executions were done, again, not to rehabilitate anyone, but rather to show everyone else, this is what happens when you go against this. This is what happens when you threaten the authority of the individual who is in authority or the um, the uh, what do you call it? the state that's in authority. If you do that, then you're going to end up like them. Don't be like them. And, yes, you know. and I, I think I, I think that it comes down to when we're extracting our morals, what we're trying to seek is the high ground of justice and not punishment for the sake of just um, watching someone scream and suffer. And I think right. that's actually an evil act in itself. And I think of people like Ivan the Terrible and uh, who would impale, you know, would impale people and boil people and do all like things that were just, you know, a, a, as the younger generation would say, that's OD, right? Like, like, like yeah. they're, they're, they're just, they're, they're going way too far and they're committing evil, their, their punishments or whatever are evil. They're just evil because they're not there to bring harmony and justice to the universe. They're just there to like take it to a whole other stream. I actually think that's a great topic for another podcast. Luke, thank you so much for being on the show today. No, oh, thank you for having me, Aaron. I greatly appreciate this. Anytime, my friend. This concludes the 68th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.